In just under a month, the government will host its much-vaunted Jobs and Skills Summit, and it's shaping up to matter to the way we think about our economy. Though a seat at the table won't be easy to come by, attendance will be limited to around 100 participants. The Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, has warned the participants it's a working summit, not a soiree. He wants people to bring fresh ideas. Now, we'll cover that summit in more detail when it happens, but some of those ideas are already being aired and some pushbacks emerging too. The ACTU this week released a report for the summit titled An Economy That Works for People implying the pandemic offers a chance for a reset in our thinking. Dr Jim Stanford's the report's author. He's an economist and director of the Centre for Future Work, which is based at the Australia Institute, and he joins me now. Welcome. Thank you, Geraldine. Uh, Do you think the pandemic has reset us? I think we have the potential to reset ourselves. Uh, It won't happen automatically. But I do think the pandemic was a a wake-up call. Uh, It's forced us to confront some issues that had been festering for a long time before the pandemic and then really kind of reached uh, the breaking point. For example, um, think about how we had to value the essential services that people provided during the pandemic, Uh, not just the healthcare workers and first responders and so on, but everybody doing these jobs that we often considered disposable or menial jobs like cleaners or carers or delivery drivers? How how would we have gotten through without them? So the pandemic, uh, in a way, opened our eyes to how essential those services are. And then when people started getting sick, uh, I think particularly with the Omicron variant, and we saw hundreds of thousands of people staying away from work because they, they had COVID or had been exposed to COVID or were caring for someone with COVID, that was a, a sharp reminder that, in fact, it's it's human beings who make up the economy. You know, it isn't the all ordinaries index or the financial wheelings and dealings. It's human beings who have to get up and go to work. Otherwise, the economy grinds to a halt. So those are important lessons, uh, I think, Geraldine, that set the stage for an honest discussion at this summit about what has worked and what hasn't worked uh, in our economy in recent years. Yes, the Hawke-Keating government did something similar when it came to office in the 1980s, held this huge economic and tax summit. I was a very young journalist and I went to that. Um, do you, are you looking for something similar? I mean, out of that came, for instance, the massively important Prices and Income Accord and the Business Council of Australia was formed because business realised that it, it just wasn't vaguely organised enough and the world of labour was, so the world of capital got its act together. Now, Do you think something like that, or what would be the equivalent now? I think the spirit of discussion is is similar, uh, Geraldine, to what was done uh, uh, in those years in the the early 80s. But the economic conditions are night and day different. So uh, I don't think anyone uh, is expecting to have an accord, anything like the one that happened in the early 80s. I remember at that time, Australia had high inflation, just like it did now. But it was a very different world. Uh, You had uh, unions that had very strong bargaining power. You had wages that had increased uh, rapidly. You had workers that had expanded their share of uh, total uh, uh, national output, and you had businesses that were complaining that profits were too low. Now turn almost every one of those things upside down, and that's where we're at today. Yes, we, we do have inflation, but it isn't coming from workers and wages, not remotely. It's uh, It's come from obviously some of the particular challenges of the pandemic, the supply chains and Mm. the energy price shock and so on. But it's being manifested in a a dramatic increase in profits, not in wages. And real wages are are falling rapidly. So, Well, they're not falling rapidly. They're they're levelling off, aren't they? They're not not rising off. No, 
real wages, that is to say your wage after adjusting for inflation is falling rapidly, about 3% in the last year. That's because the increase in wages is much less than the increase in prices. And that, again, is the opposite of what was happening in the 70s and the 80s. So if the last time was a, you know, a sort of trying to find a compromise between strong unions and businesses, today it's going to be a different kind of compromise that has to be found. It has to be looking at how come businesses are doing so well at a moment when average households are having a hard time paying the bills. Well, in fact, a key argument that uh, your report makes is that there have been misguided responses to tackling rising inflation and the Reserve Bank is squarely in your sights when you say that central banks are, quotes, willing to risk a deliberate recession in their crusade against inflation. Now, do you say that the, the they have the wrong mission statement or they need alternative tools to, to manage what they are managing? I think a bit of both, uh, frankly. Uh, The RBA, in theory, is guided by a charter that sets out multiple goals, including full employment and national prosperity. In practice, however, for the last 30 years, it's really been guided by one operational directive, and that is to try and keep inflation at its target level, which it it thinks is best at 2.5% a year. Now, today, it's over 6%, and it's probably going to rise a little further. So, Um, That hasn't worked out uh, too well. And in pursuing this goal of getting inflation back to 2.5%, they have explicitly said, we'll do whatever it takes. And that Mm. does mean... Uh, throwing a whole uh, cold uh, bucket of water over the economy and slowing things down, um, and I. Uh, we but you know why you know that, why they're doing that because I mean they're saying that this what happened in the seventies inflation got out of control. It was actually poorer people who played who paid the greatest price, and, it, and they had to absolutely slam the brakes on economies to bring it back. So they're saying let us tweak it now um, in order to make sure we don't have to go into that real sort of blunderbuss approach. Well, in a way, I think this infatuation with what happened in the 70s is uh, is quite um, misguided because of the change in economic circumstances. In the 70s, uh, unions were strong and real wages were growing. In this era, uh, collective bargaining has collapsed and real wages are falling. It's corporate profits that are the driving force behind the inflation that we're seeing. So uh, again, I think there is a knee-jerk tendency at the RBA and other, other places to, to think, oh, we better you know, clamp down on workers. Otherwise, we'll repeat the cycle of the 1970s, when in fact, it's a different set of problems causing this inflation. And that's why this report argues for a more diverse toolbox, if you like. Right now, the only tool is, including fiscal policy, Mm. including uh, regulatory policy around uh, things like prudential lending and so on, to try and make sure that the credit that is issued through the banking system is used for more productive purposes. Uh, also investments in uh, supply chains and uh, regulated energy prices, which have been some of the key sources of inflation that we've been experiencing. So just go a little bit more into that. Would you be in there regulating what banks can lend and to whom, would you? Uh, via well, we the Reserve Bank? regulations. Yeah, uh, the Reserve Bank itself doesn't handle the prudential lending uh, rules, but they participate in a council of financial regulators and they uh, communicate and cooperate with other agencies that do. So instead of just using that one sledgehammer, lift the interest rate or reduce the interest rate, lift the interest rate or reduce the interest rate, 
try and tailor the impacts of that so that you can discourage lending that's not helpful. Think about, say, the lending that fueled the property price bubble or some of the financial shenanigans like cryptocurrency and so on, and encourage, continue to encourage lending that is helpful, including lending in uh, business capital investment and, and supply chains and infrastructure. Those are things we need to address the inflation that's come from supply chain uh, crises. You're very, you put quite a lot of effort into uh, discussing the drop in business investment in particular. Yes. Um, mm. Now, which a lot of people have been talking about, but it, then it, it goes into the back burner. And in fact, I think you draw a conclusion, but you, your words will be interesting to hear, that really there's been, in a way, in fact, the world of capital has been let off the hook ever since the beginning of the this 21st century in, in terms of they're dropping an investment. What do you want of them? How do you want them to think ideally? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, What we really want is we want the surplus that's generated in our economy to be plowed back into the economy in terms of new capital investment, new technology, innovation, research and development, infrastructure, and so on. There's an incredible disconnect, uh, Geraldine, right now between corporate profits, which are higher than they have ever been, ever in history, almost 30% of GDP, going to corporate profits, but corporate investment, how much of that money is plowed back into, you know, whether it's tangible capital and new projects or innovation, R&D, 37 cents of each dollar of profits is all that's plowed back into the economy. But so what, what would you what would you kinds of negative impact. What would you do about that? Are you implying that um, in an in an ideal world that you'd like to see, there'd be some sort of insistence or some sort of regulation almost um, by saying, well you, the world of capital, you have to plow a certain amount back. Uh, you know, which right. means that yeah. then you're fundamentally changing the relationship of the shareholder to the to the uh, corporation, aren't you? Well, there's a number of ways to go at it. The first and most obvious, Geraldine, is to ask, why are we giving them so much money in the first place? The whole logic of trickle-down economics is give more money to wealthy people and businesses that they own, and then they'll invest and start new jobs and businesses, and we'll all be better off. And that clearly hasn't happened. So first of all, we have to say, why are we giving 30% of GDP? That's about twice the long-term average uh, to companies that aren't reinvesting. Secondly, for the profits that they are getting, uh, is it legitimate uh, or not? And one of the proposals in our report is for an excess profit tax in sectors like the energy industry, which have profited enormously from the inflation that you and I are paying for. Uh, That's a way to get some of that surplus and redistribute it to protect people. Finally, uh, we can restructure our fiscal incentives so that there's more, uh, more carrot, if you like, more incentive for businesses to actually do something with the money rather than what they're doing now, which is either hoarding it or investing it in other countries or paying it out in enormous uh, special dividends or share buybacks for uh, for their shareholders. So there's lots of ways to get at that. The fundamental starting point, though, is that the, the logic of trickle-down economics, which is give these companies more money and they know what to do when with you it. Say, we'll what do you mean profit. give the, what that, do you mean, wrong. what do you mean give these country, uh, companies more money? Well, we are giving them more money. We're giving them 30% of our GDP in gross profits. Uh, and some of that comes from the but very making, sources of the inflation. But they're making, they're well, doing the production. They're, they're, they're plunging, you know. You know, 
That's an interesting point you make, because I'm often amazed at how much attention the RBA and government officials and so on pay to labor costs, okay? Like any increase in wages is considered an increase in the cost of production, and it's something to worry about. And they put out report after report on what's happening to unit labor costs. Nobody pays attention to profits and the share that they account for in total costs of production and the eventual prices that we pay, which is, a, a, in a way, a really biased thing. It's like workers have to have their income controlled lest it get out of control. But profits, well, that's just a return to investment and ingenuity right. and innovation. And that's, that's nonsense. Profits have become a huge source of inflation. And rethinking the role of labor and business in explaining how we're producing and how we're not producing and why prices are growing so quickly, I think, is a, a, a top task for this jobs summit. Now, look, another area that is uh, is mm-hmm. around productivity, which people mm-hmm. like the Productivity Commission have just basically said this is a, just an enormously important issue for Australia, which we re- we keep averting our gaze from because our productivity levels have really dropped quite considerably this this century. And I want to read the the Financial Review's editorial about your uh, report that came out. The union peak body, once led by Bob Hawke, Bill Kelty and Simon Crean, is fundamentally unserious for our times. It doesn't get productivity, saying it's not the issue, defying wisdom that says it's almost always the issue. Instead, it wants to get straight on with redistribution, reversing the reform direction that began with the 1983 Economic Summit. So how do you answer that? Hmm. Well, uh, look at the facts on productivity, which we present in the report. Uh, The productivity of the average Australian worker has never been higher. So productivity has grown. It hasn't fallen. Now it's grown at a slower rate than it has in the past. And I would attribute that slowdown more to issues about the weak business investment and technology and, and innovation. But the key problem here, Geraldine, is that the increases in productivity that have been achieved, and they're not insignificant, 13% increase over the last decade in the amount of real output per hour of work, those have not translated at all into improved real wages and improved living standards for workers. There has been zero increase in real wages over the last decade. So productivity is growing, but workers who who account for that productivity in the end through their labor are not getting any payback from it. And now we see real wages falling. So if we want to talk seriously about productivity, it has to be connected to a plan to make sure that the gains of productivity are shared. And right now they aren't. Do you think productivity could be better? Like we've just had also oh, that, you know, with lack of complexity in Australian production no. generally, the tech industries <laughs> screaming for workers. No, 100%. Like- more export, absolutely. More technology. I mean, we have a situation where we um, employers are complaining about a labour shortage and that is forcing them to try to use labor more efficiently, to make the most of the workers that they can find. And and, and gradually, we're going to see them using more technology and machinery and even robots. Uh, and this is a good thing. And in fact, since the, the since the pandemic, we've actually had a bit of an upsurge in, in productivity, growing at over 2% a year right now. But again, for that to be sustained, uh, it has to be accompanied by measures to tie productivity growth to higher real wages. And that doesn't happen by itself. It doesn't happen by magic. It doesn't happen by supply and demand forces. It happens because we put in place uh, structures and policies and institutions like collective bargaining to make sure that workers have a share and a chance to get 
some gains that go along with higher productivity. Are you confident, final question, that if your some of your ideas came through and we did have a, a, a reset, that this would be a dynamic economy, attracting capital from overseas, growing jobs? Is that what you think would be the result or is it a sort of a, a flatter, better distributed, fairer, but a flatter economy? No, I think the fairness and the dynamism of the economy can go hand in hand. Um, First of all, we don't need to attract capital from overseas. We've got swaths of capital right here in Australia that businesses are earning in profits but not reinvesting here. Now, I'm certainly open to getting more investment from overseas as well. I'd like to see more investment in technology and innovation and machinery from uh, capital of any nationality, frankly. But uh, what's clear is that the emphasis in the last generation on controlling inflation and controlling workers and controlling wages and controlling budget deficits hasn't paid off. We have not captured that dynamism, that innovation, um, and we're certainly not sharing the gains that we are generating with the people who work hard to produce it. All right. Well, very interesting. As I say, it's going to make for a very interesting summit, I think. Well, Thank- that was the idea, right? To put some ideas out there. I, so hopefully I, we've done I could that. feel that. <laughs> okay. Thank you for joining us, Jim. Thank you very much, Geraldine. Dr. Jim Stanford talking to us from Canada. Um, You can hear that Canadian accent there. And if you look on the ACTU site, you can find that uh, an economy for people. And as I said, we'll be reporting on that summit um, uh, with some detail when it comes up in early September. Well, up next, what happens when academics analyse 71 billion Facebook friendships?